0: Um, Yes, I work in uh, astrophysics and I work for the Zooniverse and uh, the Zooniverse is a collection of projects, which I will explain, where we we are trying to crowdsource research and sometimes people call this citizen science, but I'm just going to call it the Zooniverse because that's what it is. Um, I should point out from the off that I am uh, not uh, in the humanities at all. Um, I am an astrophysicist, absolutely, (laughs) I'm afraid. Uh, Sometimes I'm a web developer. So uh, you'll have to excuse me if I perhaps make some kind of faux pas or error regarding uh, the humanities um, or if I refer to things being the humanities when they're not. But uh, the talk is what it is, so you can always correct me uh, afterwards if you like. So the Zooniverse is many things, and uh, it's best described right now by our homepage. Um, This is what zooniverse.org currently looks like. And we've got lots of projects. We've got space projects, and um, there's quite a few of those because that's where we started. We've got some climate projects, humanities, uh, nature projects, and uh, we've got biology projects as well, which we've been doing recently. Um, and they're all they're all different. And um, they're all basically their own unique website with their own URL. Um, it's easiest to point you to zooniverse.org as the place where they're just all listed, but you probably find that you like one or the other of them more or is more interesting for some reason. And they all require people to do different things, and I shall briefly explain what those things are in a moment. Um, it all works because of this uh, effect, let's call it, or fact. And um, this is a diagram by David McCandless. He works for The Guardian now, and he runs a wonderful blog called informationisbeautiful.net, um, which basically it's infographics of amazing facts and figures. Um, This rather large blue box is 200 billion hours that is spent every year by US adults watching television. And the little tiny blue box is the 100 million hours that it took to create Wikipedia in its current form. Mm -hmm. So this uh, relates to something called cognitive surplus, which is a term coined by Clay Shirky, which I really like. He's at NYU. And uh, it's basically saying, if we can divert a bit of the big blue box into other things, we can we can achieve wonderful and amazing things. Wikipedia is obviously yeah. one of them. Uh, a related example uh, would be from these guys. Um, hands up in the room if you have lost a chunk of your life to Angry Birds. Good. You're not alone. Me too. It was about two weeks, about so like two years ago. Um, well, Angry Birds is very popular. It's on just about every device you can play a game on, and it's popular still is they've got more versions of Angry Birds than ever before and so the human race it turns out, uh, this is a fact from last year, uh, spends 16 years playing Angry Birds every hour of every day. So that's a lot obviously and it speaks again to this concept of cognitive surplus. There is a lot of spare brain power out there um, if Angry Birds was a study into the aerodynamic flights of birds we would know a lot about them by now. But it's not bad that we watch TV and play Angry Birds, incidentally. It's just a good example of the kinds of... There is it's a physics engine, but alas, we're slaves to it. We're not helping it, but yes. So uh, we uh, began tapping into this cognitive surplus six years ago in 2007 when we launched a website called Galaxy Zoo. Now, again, I stress I'm not in the humanities. So the first few projects I will show you are all uh, not humanities projects. I'm going to focus on the ones we've got those in a minute. It all began with a project called Galaxy Zoo in which we show people galaxies and we ask them to tell us what they look like. And that's really useful for astronomers because that sort of, what we call morphological classification of galaxies uh, is very informative as to the evolution and the history of these objects. Um, But it's something computers can't do very well. So what we took was a, a, a database of a million galaxies in 2007 and we asked people to say whether they were spiral, like this one here, or whether they were elliptical, whether they're just blobs. And and that turned out to to go really well. (laughs) We got 40 different people to look at every galaxy in the database over about 18 months. It went a lot quicker than we thought. And what we've ended up with is this fantastic database that you can dive into, and you can get all these specific kinds of objects, which before were just impossible to determine automatically. So we can combine that human classification that can't be matched by a computer with all sorts of things that we do know automatically from a computer, like the galaxy's distance and its color and its size. And this lets us do new astronomy and new astrophysics. Uh, Similarly, we have a project called the Milky Way Project, where we look at this kind of imagery. This is from the Spitzer Space Telescope. It's a NASA infrared telescope. And we ask people to look through this to draw bubbles. So there's several bubbles in the big picture there. There's a nice example of a bubble here. And we literally get them to draw the bubbles on the images. And we collect them all up into a big catalog. And that's produced astronomy's biggest catalog of bubbles that we have. It's 10 times bigger than the one one before it. And it took a lot of people. 50,000 people have contributed 4 million drawings. And we crowdsource all those together to create these sorts of catalogs. And there's other incidental things that come out of this. Um, And this is ongoing work at at the Milky Way project. Very excitingly, we have a a project that hunts for planets. We've discovered two planets, thanks to planethunters.org, over the last couple of years. Um, And that's two that we've discovered completely on our own. There are other planets we've discovered that have also been discovered by other people, and that's good, because this helps us verify the techniques being used by other people. And on, on this website, we get people to look at these things. They're light curves. And, and they're, they're caused by uh, you, you have a star, and there's a planet going around that star, and as it goes between you and the planet, you get a little dip in the light. A tiny, tiny dip. It's like a mosquito going in front of a, 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 a lamppost. But the Kepler spacecraft, which is where the data is from, has stared at about 160,000 of these stars all in one place and just watched them for three years. And we get all these uh, lovely light curves, and we can pick out the planets. Now Kepler's found thousands of potential planets, hundreds of confirmed planets. Um, We have two, all of our own. And what's great is we get to know which people around the world found the planets. And we get to send them an email and say, you've discovered a planet. Um, And this has been great work. There's a bunch of other stuff you can do here as well, because there's kind of cool wobbly stars that do things. There's these things called heartbeat stars, where these things aren't flat at all. They're like ECGs and we can measure those and detect those, and it's all stuff that people do better than computers, which is basically the theme of the Zooniverse. So we've got a bunch of space projects. We've also branched out uh, in the last two or three years into other things as well. For example, we're trying to map the language of killer whales using a website called Whale FM. We get people to listen to the words that whales say to each other and to match them up with other words we have in the database. So we have about 16,000 individual whale words in our database, recorded in Norway, Iceland, and the Caribbean. And then we ask you to take the best guess the computer gives you, which is appalling, by the way, (laughs) and and give us a a better guess. Um, It's working quite well. We're producing a map of whale language, which I'll I'll show you later. Um, And it's actually been one of our smaller projects. We've had 15,000 people take part and about 200,000 classifications over nearly three years and still relatively small compared to something like Galaxy Zoo, which is you know, more than uh, 10 times bigger. Uh, but Whale FM is still showing that when you, when you crowdsource these things in the right way, if you can break down the task into the right individual thing for a person to do, then you can construct something useful at the other end. Uh, and finally, as an example, there's this great one. I'll show you this because it's live right now. And if you have a laptop on you, you're about to maybe not listen to the rest of my talk if you go to this website. Um, Snapshot Serengeti, there are 250 cameras spaced evenly across Serengeti National Park, and they're triggered by motion and heat. So basically, when an animal goes past one of these cameras, they take three pictures, click, click, click. And what we end up with is millions of images of what they call charismatic megafauna, which is the best, best term. It means giraffes, really. Um, These big, awesome animals. And you have to say, ah, that photo's got a wildebeest in it, and it's sitting down. And that's so got a zebra in it running. By the way, zebras can run really fast. We've got a bunch of images in the database where you get the three frames, and only one of them has the zebra in, and it's a blur, so. Um, Snapshot Serengeti is absolutely excellent. It's recently had an influx of new images. It's been weirdly popular, so in the sense that 20,000 people have taken part, but they've done 8 million classifications. So people doing a lot of work on Snapshot Serengeti. And what's cool about it is we know where all the cameras are. We know when all the pictures are taken. We can literally see the animals migrate and move around Serengeti National Park. And it's being done because we need to understand the ecology of the way the animals are interacting with each other. And I can talk about that afterwards at coffee. It's a really interesting problem. But these people came to us with these images and said, you can surely help with this. We just need a really good, interface a really good website that catches people and it turns out we've gotten good at doing that these guys had a really interesting problem to solve so we've got a bunch of projects Um, the 200 billion hours that US adults spend watching TV we have our own way of figuring this stuff out now so last year people spent 52 years on the Zooniverse and this is a good ratio it would take you you'd have to work non-stop for 52 years to match what we achieved last year which, of course, if you actually converted it into number of people you would need, it's something like 250 full-time workers, which is thankfully 10 times what we actually have working on the Zooniverse. So uh, we're very efficient right now, and uh, we have about 850,000 people around the world taking part in our projects, and there are 17 of those projects now, one of which launched uh, only uh, two weeks ago. No, one week ago, gosh. Uh, and we've got uh, 54 peer-reviewed academic papers that have come directly from Zooniverse people. There are lots more that use Zooniverse data but aren't directly from our teams. Um, and this is a good number, and it's going up all the time, which is, of course, how we're measuring our success. We're, we're, we're quite committed to the idea that you know, we're not wasting anyone's time. If you're coming onto one of our websites and you're clicking, the idea is you're doing something useful. Uh, The the worst citizen science website is the one that isn't actually doing any science at all and you're just clicking away for nothing. So the digital humanities, um, we do have humanities uh, projects um, and they are these, we've got three of them. Uh, We've got uh, one called Old Weather which we launched in 2010 and I'll show you all these in a moment and that's transcribing uh, Royal Navy ships logs. We've got Ancient Lives from 2011, where we're transcribing ancient papyri, and that has a particular problem because it's not in English. And we've got Notes from Nature, which launched just a couple of months ago, where we're transcribing a a variety of museum collections. Um, And the big gap in the middle between 2011 and 2013 is us figuring out whether what we're doing is working for the digital humanities, Um, because there is a particular issue with humanities work in general which is that we have to transcribe all the time and people transcribing documents is a very messy business. You don't just want them to do the whole page because then you just have a bunch of text you want them to do some kind of structured transcription probably and then you have to figure out what the structure is that you want them to transcribe against and you'll see some examples of that here. So this is old weather Um, old weather has had one life and is now in its second life um, it, it, it inet- initially began uh, with national archive digitizations, which is like one of these of royal navy ships' logs and we show people those ship's logs and we would say to them, Right, there are weather observations written on this page, and we need you to find them. We know they look like this because there 's a certain form to the to, so These are weather observations here, and there's another line here, and there are six lines every day. These come from the Royal Navy, from around the time of the First World War, and they were, on every ship, the officers were recording the weather every four hours, every day, for years. And the reason that's useful is the Met Office want this done. This produces, basically as a side effect, a a crowd-sourced map of the world's climate 100 years ago, more or less. And we don't have data like that, and we certainly don't have it in the ocean parts of the world. The weather stations are generally on land. Uh, today, that's slightly different, but certainly 50 and 60 years ago, is, which is about as far back as the data used to go, um, you don't have much uh, observations of the sea. And this isn't just isn't ju- just being done over a long period of time, it's about 10 years, this period, and being done all over the world, it's being done with the same instruments by everyone. So this is calibrated data. And it's, uh, it's proven really useful. We're in, a, we're in a second phase now where we're getting people to uh, transcribe uh, American ship's logs uh, from a different period in history. This is from the 1890s and 1900s, more or less, and a little around then as well. And so we've followed this up. This task is much harder now. And if you go to Old Weather today, you don't see the Royal Navy ship's logs. You see the United States ones. But that's what the website looks like. And it's a pretty friendly website. As you fill in data on the page, you get a bunch of context appearing down here. So you get to see where the ship is and, and where it's going over time. And we find that people are very good at doing this. This is a page of results from the data reduction from Old Weather. And what you're seeing here is every individual person's drawing of the box on the page. And because it's in order, we know which observation it was during the day. Each page is one day. And you can see only one person drew a box in a completely crazy place. And it's not that crazy even. And in fact, the computer can easily say, that one's, you know, one of these things is not like the other. Um, and It's that one. And the rest is very consistent and means that we re- therefore believe the numbers that are in them and we can do other verification as well. Uh, professionally, They used to do this with paid transcribers. And they were paid two people to do it. And as long as they both got the same number, it was good. Uh, It turns out with old weather, we just need three people to do it to get the same result, which is fantastic. And they're doing it for free. Here's what uh, some of the results look like. This is a map of the world. And what you're seeing is each dot is one of the logbook pages. And the position and the date are obviously encoded on the page. And the color is the uh, air pressure, which is basically a measure of how good or bad the weather is. And you're seeing the ships move around. This is 1914 in the summer, so the First World War is about to begin. And you'll know when it does. There's the war. And what you're seeing is the area that these ships cover is enormous, and they go all over the place. They cover mostly the Atlantic. But the area up around here, of course, it's the Royal Navy, so they're often around the UK, is covered in great detail. You'll see they they zip around over the top here quite a lot. There's always someone in Hong Kong. They go around Africa and over to India quite a lot. And sometimes we get activity in the Pacific, although it's slightly less common. Um, We can do this for the, the whole of about nine years. And we can do it with a variety of parameters. And this data is being fed back into the Met Office simulations. And it's already useful. And it's all been provided by members of the public. So it's being fed back into this acre, the atmospheric circulation reconstructions over the Earth, which might have the worst logo I've ever seen. Um, it's certainly up there. The use of the papyrus font is quite funny. Um, the reason people did old weather, though, wasn't for any of that weather stuff. Um, only we think of it as a weather project. It's actually a history project for most people. And that's because alongside all the weather observations on every page is what is happening on the ship. And these are examples of the things that get written in the logbooks. There's two or three of these comments every day. There are people coming on and off the ship. There are interesting things happening. There's one here. That ship's company gave a concert for the HMS Triad. Uh, lecture by the captain subject to the evolution of man. Uh, this being Good Friday, sailors get a holiday. Uh, observed a comet in the sky eastward. That had a lot of our uh, you know, users on our forum going for it, because a lot of them had done things like Galaxy Zoo and, and the other space projects. They were quite interested in that. They do a lot of concerts. Oh, this one here. Order to commence hostilities against Germany received. That's in a lot of logbooks, unsurprisingly. Uh, we can text mine all of that, because people have typed it in for us. And so we made a treasure map. Uh, this was looking for the word overboard. And it's all the points where there were pages where something was went overboard. So if you want a galvanized hand bucket, there's probably one about there. <laughs> I've had it pointed out to me that it probably floated off, but we'll ignore that fact. Um, We made this map. We were having lots of fun until we started seeing uh, things like this. Uh, People go overboard too. And this was one of the reasons we did Old Weather was because there's a lot of information in these logbooks about family history stuff. We can discover uh, events that occurred that were simply registered as someone died on this trip. And now we can find the details. And so we have... uh, family historians working with us as well. And so we're working with people to try and get this digitized data in a useful form somewhere online. And we think the solution is going to be something like Ancestry.com or, or the, you know, the family history websites. There's a cool other result from old weather, which was this. Um, our users have a great habit, and this is something you see across sort of crowdsourcing and citizen science. Um, they like to just do things themselves. So they realize that the pages also contain the number of people on the sick list on each ship, so the number in sick bay, And they started writing it down, and they did it with a hashtag, hashtag sicklist and the number. We didn't ask for it, but they did it anyway. And so then, for a lot of the ships, we know how many people were in sick bay at any point. And this is the HMS Africa sicklist from um, 1918. And you might spot something weird happens in the summer, um, and you might know that that's the Spanish flu. So this is a crew complement of 600. So virtually uh, everyone is in sick bay over the course of about a week. Uh, And we see this on all the ships. We see the Spanish flu come and go at different times, and they go into ports, and then they come out, and everyone gets the flu three days later. And uh, there's some interesting data there, which we never asked for, but this is the kind of serendipitous stuff you get from doing uh, stuff with the public. So that was old weather. A year later, we did Ancient Lives, and Ancient Lives asks people to transcribe this, which is slightly harder. Um, And... These are documents from, they stored in the Sackler Library in Oxford, and it's the Oxyrhynchus collection, which some people know quite well. Uh, Oxyrhynchus means city of the sharp-nosed fish, I'm told. And it was basically that 100 years ago, a couple of uh, Oxford uh, academics went out there and began excavating a rubbish dump from the city of Oxyrhynchus. And so they pulled out everything you find in a rubbish dump, so paper in this case. And so it was things like receipts and documents of all kinds and tax documents and uh, legal documents as well. And they just began pulling them out and sending them back to Oxford, and they've stored them there ever since. And they've had someone for about 100 years, not the same person, has been going through this this collection to try and understand what it all means. Now, they're classicists, and they can actually read this stuff, but the public can't. So we had to make a website where people could actually attempt to uh, transcribe this stuff for us. So we made them a little Coptic Greek keyboard um, with some other useful symbols here. And we said, click where you see a letter and then tell us what letter it is. And it t- they're surprisingly good at this. They've done something like 8 million of these markings over the last couple of years. And uh, we're, we found interesting documents in here. And they're, they're, b- they're basically working on producing a catalog that will be accepted by the community because Uh, This is not a group of people that were necessarily uh, ready for crowdsourcing in this way. (laughs) This has been done to them. So they're going to have to figure out how, as an academic community, they're going to uh, fold in the data we have produced on this website. Uh, It's a great community on Ancient Lives. There's a forum attached to all our projects. This is a group of people discussing this piece of pyro that you see in the the background, um, which is basically blank, save for this line of scrawl here, uh, which they discuss on the forum for some time, and they realize it's probably maths. Um, and it's basically someone doodling in the corner of a page and working out a sum. And uh, ex- things like this exist. There's also plenty of drawings on that got get lots of people talking. Um, uh, finally, uh, is Notes from Nature, which we launched a couple of months ago and uh, which is just getting going. In Notes from Nature, we've got a variety of museum collections. We've basically got plants, bugs, and birds. Um, and at the moment, we just have plants and bugs online. So they're, they're coming from different places. We have um, CERNEC, as I call them, or I'm not sure if I pronounce it the way they would. Um, they have the herbarium collection, which is pressed plants, and people are asked to transcribe the little labels that are next to the plant. Uh, those labels say uh, where things were collected, who collected them, and uh, when they're from. This is stuff that's... There's millions of these things, these little stickers on things next to things in museums. Digitizing this in the sense of taking a picture is easy. And digitizing it in the sense of actually writing down what's on there is very hard. And so the public are underway doing this and categorizing all of this stuff. We also have the cow bug collection, which is basically lots of bugs on sticks. And bugs on sticks also have labels <coughs> next to them. And so we're doing the same thing. We're, we're basically jotting down these things Uh, in association with the pictures there's some really cool bugs in there if you like bugs Um, there's they they all sort of look helplessly impaled on these tiny pins Um, and uh, there's a nice variety of them Uh, kids love this Um, and uh, they they also love the whale project because it basically sounds like rude noises so there's there's something for everyone notes from nature um, is is very recent and I'd encourage you to have a look at it if you're looking for an example of what a sort of right up an up-to-date Zooniverse project and what it looks like. We have learned a lot over the last few years. We employ designers, for example, which we didn't used to do, and that's very important. Um, we also use uh, much better web technology now. These things work on iPads, and they, you know, they're very slick in terms of where they operate in your web browser, and uh, Notes from Nature is a good example of a modern website being used for uh, crowdsourcing, and, and it's a humanities project and we hopefully have more of them to come. So what's next for us? Well, uh, in a general sense, what's next for us is, uh, just going back to astronomy because it's the thing I know best, is dealing with data that's even bigger than we've been dealing with before. And this is relevant to the humanities. I, I, I mentioned that the museum collections, that they have just millions of these stickers next to these objects in museums. We couldn't even begin to do what they need doing. We're just taking some collections and working on them. There's far more stuff out there than we'll get through in years. Um, And the same is true in astronomy. We've got this telescope coming along that's going to observe billions of galaxies. Now, we've gotten through millions of Galaxies Zoo, which has been fantastic, but they're basically going to, to just outdo us again and collect them at a much faster rate. So what we're gonna do is, and we're working on this now, is we create machine learning code to learn from what people do. So you give it the results of crowdsourcing. You give it the results of what people do on Galaxy Zoo. And you train a machine to act like the crowd. And that, so far, is showing great promise in two areas in particular. This uh, is a map of the whale language from Whale FM. Uh, These are all the sounds clustered together according to how people have paired them up. So you can see there are certain clumps here, and then these are words. There are tight clumps like this, which are probably words that are said the same way by all whales. And then there are clumps that are longer, and these are words that are not said as consistently by whales. This map can be used to train a computer to try and have a go at taking over and doing the job itself. And that's showing good promise. And we also have this. This is a map of all the bubbles from the Milky Way project, the the beautiful Spitzer project. And this is in color order. So you've got red all the way across to green. There's 4,000 bubbles here that the users have found. We can use this as an index card to tell a computer what a bubble looks like. And every one of these has a number associated with it, which is how much people agreed with that being a bubble. So you can imagine that if you show 50 people something, and they all take a stab at drawing it, then the variation in which they do that is a good measure of, of how easy or hard a bubble is to identify. And so we can get computers to deal with that stuff. And uh, again, this is work we're doing right now. So we've got 850,000 people doing 17 projects. I haven't shown you them all, but they're all at zooniverse.org. I'm on Twitter if you want to contact me. I'm also just rob at zooniverse.org. And I am happy to take questions.